As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Eric McKissick. Eric is an experienced CEO, entrepreneur, portfolio management executive, and independent board member. If you go on his LinkedIn, it's a pretty long list of companies where he serves as a board. But as a founder and CEO, most recently, CEO of Channing Capital Management, LLC, he was at the helm at the Chicago-based investment management firm from its inception in 2004 to the end of 2019. The firm, which specializes in domestic and international equity investing, manages over $2.5 billion in assets and for a variety of institutional clients, including public employee retirement systems, corporations, universities, foundations, mutual funds, and Taft-Hartley plans. Last but not least, he is a Berkeley Haas alumni. He was part of the Berkeley Columbia Executive MBA program, class of 2004. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thanks, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Eric, we like to start off these interviews hearing about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, how you grew up. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and from a a large extended family, although I myself was an only child, but my father had one of six boys, and so we all had the same last name, all of our, my, those in my generation. And our grandfather and great uncle had been entrepreneurs. So we had a strong family identity. And I had a role model, role models in the family of business leaders and entrepreneurs, even though it was in the South and it was a very challenging time for Black Americans to be business people. Did you grow up, spend all your time in Nashville growing up? I did. I went to elementary school, high school there. I didn't leave until I went away for college. So I have a very fond memory of a very warm, extended family and a strong family identity as a result of that. And Nashville, although I mentioned references Southern location, Nashville had a strong educational environment for it's black residents because they had a number of historically black colleges there. So I had lots of examples of people who were professionals and educators and the like. And I think I benefited from that exposure. That's amazing. What led you to Boston for school, <laughs> for MIT? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I uh, had the opportunity to, having never been to Boston or really not much out of Nashville before my late teens, mid-teens, I got an offer to visit the campus on MIT's dime. So they were very interested in attracting diverse students at the time. And I guess they thought, okay, unlike a a college athlete who might get that kind of deal, they sent me a plane ticket to come visit the campus. And since I hadn't seen many of the other campuses that I was interested in at that time, that sold me, and as well as one of my uncles, who was an architect running the family business, said, oh, if I could have gone anywhere, I would have gone to MIT. That wasn't available to him in in his era. So I suppose that combination of things led me to MIT. And what did you decide to study there? That's a really good and important question. I went there for architecture because 
that was the family business and engineering and design. My grandfather and great uncle were the first black registered architects in the U.S. So there was a family business that was built on their launch and that continues on in a couple of my cousins of this generation. So I went there initially for that. That was part of my uncle pushing because he was the one who was running that business at that point. My founding relatives, ancestors that were deceased by then. So he pushed me in that direction. But ultimately, in the category of questioning the status quo, (laughs) I felt (laughs) that I should pursue my own interests. And I also decided or or felt that in addition to being engineers and architects, they were also business people. They did real estate development and some other things later in their business careers. I'm speaking of my grandfather and great uncle now. So I ended up going into the Sloan School undergrad there at MIT. What did you do after college with your uh, Sloan degree? After I worked for a few years in Boston in, in banking and did have some hard time educational experience, but I ultimately ended up in Chicago getting a job in the investment management industry, which was in my go- was my goal. I was working in more of a credit area for what's now part of Bank of America. Bank of Boston was really the unit that became part of B of A ultimately. And then I, I wanted to get into investment management and there weren't any opportunities available for me in New England, but I was able to do so at what was in first Chicago, which is now part of JP Morgan Chase in part of the, uh, all of the bank rollups. And it was there that I got my first equity research experience and that I met the founder of Ariel Investments and was able to join there and have, get my portfolio management equity research background that comprised most of my career. What led you to go found your own firm, investment firm? That's also another pivotal moment in my career. I got to a point where I felt that either I would stay where I was indefinitely, and that would be the duration of my career and be my experiences, or I could have the experience of starting a firm of my own. And I, while I had joined Ariel early on, I was not a founder. And so it was like a fork in the road kind of opportunity in my mind. And I took it and launched the firm with a couple of other partners. It turned out to be, I would say a mixed blessing. Certainly starting a firm is challenging for at any time and place, but also the industry had changed a lot from earlier in my career. Obviously the growth of alternative strategies, indexing, becoming a more powerful asset gathering mechanism, even the novelty of Minority firms was not as unique as it had been in earlier years. And then finally starting a firm in 2004, it wasn't long before the Great Recession hit. Yeah. So there were a lot of challenges. Nevertheless, we were able to survive those. I always say that we got through that period and Lehman and Bear Stearns didn't. So we felt we had something to be proud of to get through the Great Recession. And, and the firm continues on with my partners in, in the lead. That's amazing. I'm really curious, if you don't mind me asking, what um, were some of your investment theses in the beginning? We were long only managers. So we did not offer a, a hedge product. And we were public markets. So in some sense, we were old fashioned stock pickers <laughs> focused on primarily on small and mid-cap companies. We had a value orientation and that was similar to what I had done in my career at Ariel Investments. So it was, and I think that helped us to get off the ground that I had a track record of running a product for 12 years 
And under that strategy in which I was the portfolio manager, we accumulated $5 billion in AUM or assets wow. under management. So that allowed me to, with the support of my partners, to launch Channing Capital Management. And we opened our doors in 2004 to be specific of that. There was a little garden leave in there. And that also coincided with the opportunity to do BCMBA as well. So that worked out well in terms of timing. Wait, so you, you were doing the, the MBA while, the executive MBA, while you were founding this investment firm. Yeah, and also the garden leave provided a, a window to do that as well. Wow. So the strategy was built on what I had been involved with before, but also we tried to have some nuances just as Warren Buffett, the most probably most famous value investor of all time, has expanded his canon to include different types of companies. We try to evolve in our thinking about what is a value company and no more has that been convoluted in recent years when you find even companies like Google in a value benchmark for large cap anyway. So we try to get involved with that evolution. However, it's a very challenging time to be a traditional investor when there's so much technology out there and so many different players and so many different strategies. There's still people who've done it successfully and there were, I think there will always be room for uh, genius in this space. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I had it, but there will always be a room for that. But there also is going to be opportunity for uh, technology to impact as it has the way decisions are made in the space. It's interesting to say that. I mean, I, I have a finance background, definitely not as deep as you, but with just my rudimentary uh, you know, understandings of finance and, and the markets, I would think that value investing would still win out because you, you can have the Robin Hoods of the world. You can have machine learning based investment technology and whatnots, but those I feel like would only really affect short-term volatility. We have these things. Yes. I think in general, that's correct. I agree completely with that. I think the trick is that because all of our timetables, including institutions and retail investors are so short, sometimes periods of overvaluation and undervaluation can last very long, longer than the patience of your clients. I see. So clients may not be patient enough to recognize that there's a bubble brewing and want to go where they think the grass is greener to another manager, do a reallocation. Ultimately, markets are still about human nature, no matter how much technology is introduced into the process. And human nature can sometimes lead to business outcomes that are not favorable even for the most talented investment managers. I guess you're, yeah, you definitely face the same issues that the VC funds that we, I've been talking to face as well. They, they had to get the money out <laughs> at a certain time. So I never really considered that for an investment firm as well. That makes a lot of sense. Learn something today. I do have to ask, you know, 2000, early 2000s was, was not 2022. And you had mentioned that there weren't many minority owned investment firms. Did you face challenges raising capital for your first fund? Yeah, for sure. There are always challenges raising money in any business or any investment entity. And I can't say that the challenges were strictly based on pure discrimination, but I think what often happens is that certain types of resumes get more of a pass or more of a benefit of the doubt than others. You'll hear about these firms that are launched by someone who came out of, and I'm picking on Goldman, but came out of Goldman and they have a track record and they have a billion dollars since they opened the doors. And that's not to say that doesn't happen for some diverse candidates that they have the same kind of resumes, but 
that wasn't the background that I had. I came out of another minority owned firm to launch another, to launch a minority firm. Right. We, and while that firm had a great track record and a great reputation, I don't think we necessarily got the same benefit of the doubt. <laughs> it was more like, okay, well, let's see what you can do in this new environment. And then we'll give you money if we like what we see. So we were able to get capital and some funds to manage. So, and I think that was on the strength of the experience that I had, but I'm not sure that another better situated portfolio manager might not have gotten a better opportunity. It's a counterfactual, so I can't really prove it, but that's the observation I had of seeing at least some managers coming out and getting, raising incredible amounts of money out of the gate. Yeah. I can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> just, just starting an investment management firm. It's very challenging. I think the people who are most successful at it are those that have been able to develop track records through a prior experience and, and have the kind of blue chip backgrounds that, as well as client embrace, whether it's high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals or institutional support. But very often too, it takes a certain person to decide they want to do that because if you're at a successful firm and you have a great track record, then a lot of people are very comfortable staying there because they're very often making very high compensation. There may be golden handcuffs. There are all kinds of reasons why starting a business is something you have to be highly motivated. And I used to say that when I was with the launch of Channing, and especially in the early years and along the way too, that some days I'd say, oh, this is great. Why did I take so long to do this? And other days I would say, oh, you're too old for this. Why did you do this? It was an emotional roller coaster at times between those two emotional extremes. Yep. That's what it feels like on a day to day for me as well. You're living the entrepreneurial experience, the entrepreneur's <laughs> experience that is to be expected. That's what I would say about it. Yeah. So I graduated uh, my undergrad in 2007 in Michigan. And okay. mentioned this, I remind people a lot that Michigan had, in the Midwest, had been impacted by the, the downturn before the subprime mortgage crisis because of the auto industry the year prior. And so I'm really curious, how, how did Channing stay alive, stay, make it through the 2008 reckoning? I would say the main way that we manage is the way many entrepreneurial organizations manage, just as you see certain types of businesses managing through the pandemic. And that is, we didn't have to lay off anyone and we didn't cut salaries of the staff, but the partners, the three of us took significant haircuts. We just tightened our belts. And as you know, the, there's a good news, bad news story about investment management, traditional investment management companies. Certainly this isn't as true on uh, certain types of fund products where the uh, fees that are awarded the sponsors may be relatively level for a period. But in investment management, long only strategies, typically your revenues go up and down with the market assuming you aren't able to gather more assets as the market goes down. Well, what typically happened in our space is that the money just froze up because people were like deers in headlights, not sure what to do. As the market went down 10, 20, 30, 40%, our revenues went down significantly. And since it's a high fixed cost business, your profitability evaporates because you, you got all these fixed costs of equipment and services. And since all of your talent is really constant, most of your talent is concentrating the people that work for you. That's why we decided we wanted to keep them. Yeah. So the shorter answer to your question is we just tightened our belts and held our breath and got through it. But I think we were fortunate in some ways in that we 
didn't have a big fancy office or or lots of expenses. We were still an emerging firm and we didn't have a huge staff. And so it wasn't as much of a sacrifice to tighten our belts as it might've been if we had been a much larger organization. And it wasn't as challenging as it would be for some of the larger ones to figure out how to not cut to the bone. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really inspiring to hear that type of leadership where you try your best to not lay off staff or cut their salaries and cut your own. That's our mentality as well for my co-founder and I. We can we can suck it up. <laughs> We're all in it for the long game. That's the way you want to think about it. Sometimes our spouses don't fully appreciate nope. <laughs> appreciate what that means, but it is. And in a few years, they are happy that you uh, stayed the course, uh, assuming you're successful. But then again, sometimes some of these businesses are not successful, so you dust yourself off and you go on to the next thing. So I've seen those that happen as well. You recently retired, right? Yes. Considered retired? Yeah. I call myself semi-retired, which means that I'm not staring at the Bloomberg all day and picking stocks <laughs> for client, institutional clients, but I am engaged through uh, professional and civic board work, as you, think you alluded to earlier. Yeah. So what's the road on from here? I plan to continue with the professional board commitments. Uh, I chair a ETF fund board that's part of the Northern Trust product lineup. And I've been doing that since the launch of the fund family. So that's been a really terrific experience to see an ETF fund organization go from zero to over 20 billion in AUM now. And in 2014, I joined a as a trustee or a director, a fund family that's part of the Morgan Stanley lineup for, it's a proprietary fund family called Pathway. I should have mentioned that the Northern Trust Fund is called FlexShares Funds, and they all have their own branding. And then the Morgan Stanley Fund family is called Pathway Funds. And so I'm the director there. And then last year, I joined the board of Farmer Mac, which is, Farmer Mac is a New York Stock Exchange GSC government-sponsored enterprise, and many people haven't heard of it, but they have heard of Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae. And Farmer Mac is the rural land, agriculture, and cooperatives equivalent to those. So that's been a really interesting experience in just a few months uh, in that it's a hybrid of government issues with a publicly traded company. And so I'm seeing elements of both in the responsibilities and and the uh, role there. And then finally, the family business, McKissick & McKissick, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a third-generation business. I serve on the board there. For those of us that aspire to be, become board directors or be invited to become board directors, what's kind of the motivation for you personally to be a board director of these organizations? In terms of the investment, they each have a different emotional or professional tie for me. The two... Fund boards obviously keep me connected with the investment management industry. So I'm able to, um, in one case, see managers present, including firms similar to the ones that I worked at. In the other case, and I get to see the CIOs of those organizations, the economists, stay in touch with market outlook and all of those. In the case of Farmer Mac, I didn't mention that my maternal grandfather was a farmer. So the idea of sustainability of America's agriculture and rural success is of interest to me. And I had a tie there. And also 
in the context of global food supply and the like, it's proven to be a very interesting experience in the short term. And finally, the family business, not surprisingly, that has a personal and emotional role in my life, given what I mentioned earlier about growing up in an environment which was that was very influential. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You know, kind of the end of the interview, I'd like to ask some fun questions. What's something that you're looking forward to this new year? I'm looking forward to travel, hopefully. When I retired or transitioned from a full-time role at Channing at the end of 2019, my vision was to have a significant amount of travel in my plans. That's a, a, a hobby of mine. So in January, February of 2020, I went without any foresight. I was in London. I was in San Francisco. I was in Miami. I was in New York. I was in Vancouver. I was all over the place. Yeah. And then it came to an abrupt halt in March of 2020, as you can imagine. And so I'm hoping that we finally get to a point where travel is comfortable and not so complicated thing, and especially internationally. I've only been out of the country once since that time. And that was much more of a hassle than even international travel is, regardless yeah. of the pandemic. And getting tested before, tested during, tested before I could come back. And the idea of doing what I would like to do and going to different countries in succession, I would not want to do that now. I think it's just too, even if you could figure it out, it would take away from the joy of the pure joy of travel. So that's one thing that I would like to do again is travel again. I think that's the number one. We have family in London and that one trip that I took was to see them and I would like to see the grands more often than once every two years. So our prior cadence was twice a year. Hopefully that will return. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for coming on this podcast. It was a real pleasure having you. Yeah, it was uh, great to meet you and speak with you. Oh, there's one last thing. You know, if a fellow Hasi is listening and there's one reason for them to connect with you, what might that be? Like, what is something, a passion or interest? where you would love for a Hasi who has a similar passion or interest to reach out to you? One of the things that we didn't talk about is my interest. This I don't know if this applies or not, but it's clearly investment management careers are something that I have an interest in. I support people who are trying to pursue that. But I also, in a hobby area, I'm interested in art collecting. I'm an art collector. Okay. And, that's, and I also am finding that the art arena as an asset class is becoming of interest. And so that's something that I'm getting involved with through some friends and colleagues that I've developed here in Miami as a big actor, as you may know, Miami beats our Basel. And so th yep. that's something that might be of mutual interest with some other Hossies. Are there any certain periods of art that you'd like to collect? Well, I'm more of a contemporary collector. I've always said that I like to know the artist, if possible. And also, so I would say mid-century to the present or modern into contemporary, I'd say would be the areas of most of interest to me. It just so happens that that become an area that's on fire, contemporary particularly, <laughs> and which makes it harder and perhaps more speculative in some ways. But it is an interesting way that some people of wealth are treating that as a, an asset class and as a repository for their wealth. Well, it's, a, it's also a great way to support living artists. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, another part of it as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Eric. Right. Thanks again. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. 
If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.